Thank you for downloading the Wings Museum podcast and part two of the RAF Kenley Voices from the Past guided walk. Before we start, we'd like to thank the Kenley Revival team for their assistance and enthusiasm and point you towards their fascinating website, kenleyrevival.org. Here you can also find details of forthcoming events and walking tours. So to continue the tour, we once again joined the Kenley Revival's legacy officer, Linda Duffield. OK, this is a very short one. I know a lot of you will know Victor Beamish Avenue, and I always stand here and talk about Victor Beamish. He was an Irish pilot, very much loved by those who served with him. He was killed in March 1942 while he was station commander here. This is sort of surmise and hearsay, but there were a lot of question marks about overclaiming during the time that Paddy Finnegan was here, another great Irish ace. And some sources think that Victor Beamish was brought in to find out whether the claims could be authenticated or not, whether they were legitimate or whether they were just spurious. Victor Beamish was a sportsman, a rugby player. He, he was one of four very butch Irish brothers who were all in the RAF. All of them were pilots except Cecil, who was a dentist. Um, <laughs> When Victor Beamish was killed, it was a real shock to the whole station. And this is the shortest quote I'll give you on this, on this thing. But Victor Beamish once said, I cannot send these boys to do anything I wouldn't do myself. And he insisted on flying when he should have been. He was old enough that he should have been flying a desk. You know, he shouldn't have been in the air at all. Hawkeye Wells was on a 24-hour pass in London when Victor Beamish was shot down and he said, when I got back I just could not believe it. I was absolutely shattered and felt his loss deeply. I felt that if I had not gone to London he might not have been killed. He was such a fine chap. And he actually went out looking for Beamish the following day. He went out over the channel to see if there was any trace of him. No trace of him was found. Trafford Lee Mallory, who had ascended to high command by that point, said, Victor Beamish was an outstanding personality of fighter command. It was impossible to keep him on the ground, even when employed on the staff. He established his claim to rank with the greatest fighter pilots of all time. An idealist without any thought of self, he was an inspiring station commander. He will be best remembered for his magnificent and infectious courage as a brilliant and fearless leader of the fighter pilots whose interests were so dear to him and who loved him so well. So that is Victor Beamish. OK, okay this is Port Cullis Field. The little building that we passed is the Port Cullis Club, which is run by the Royal Air Force Association. It is the oldest building still existent on the airfield, dating from 1917. And it used to extend out as far as the flagpole. But obviously, I mean, you have to imagine all the trees weren't grown up in those days. And that was a bit of an obstruction for aircraft landing on that. So they demolished half of it to kind of make, it, make life a bit easier for the poor pilots. Also, in the corner right over there, there is a blacker bombard pit behind the old squash court. 
uh, Blacker Bombard is an anti-tank weapon and it would have faced down the bank as part of the ground defences of the airfield. Blacker Bombards are kind of spigot mortar. They were invented in the 30s and no one had taken much notice of them until they found every anti-tank gun left in France and then they put them into quick production at the behest of Churchill. But I want to talk about the squash court, which is still standing and over in that corner there. It became very important in 1943 because concerns were raised about the fitness of the airmen serving at Kenley, who were having a rather cushy life of it, <laughs> let's face it. And, you know, plans were being hatched for the invasion of Europe. And Group Captain McBrien, who was in charge at that point, wanted more emphasis on drill and on good ground discipline so that everything would function smoothly when the airfield went mobile. Unfortunately, all our pilots were heavily committed on bomber escort duties at that time and there wasn't really any time for a formal exercise programme and square bashing and all this rubbish. So what they wanted was competitive sports that could give vigorous exercise in a short period of time, like squash. So this emphasis on playing squash and on this sort of vigorous exercise came really to the fore. A Canadian pilot called Hugh Godfroy wrote about our squash court in his memoir. He became wing commander here after the famous Johnny Johnson, who was the highest scoring Allied ace of World War II, left. And this is what he wrote in Lucky 13. Each permanent station had squash courts and we all began to play. I knew how to handle a tennis racket, having been trained by my father. As a university student, he'd been almost good enough to make the Dutch national tennis team. Bill McBrien soon taught me that squash was a different game, thrashing me consistently whenever I played him. After learning something about the game from him, beating Johnny Johnson should have been a piece of cake. What Johnny lacked in ability, he made up for by the furious application of his competitive nature. He was all over the court running into you or stepping on your feet. It was dangerous to get in front of him. You either got hit in the arse with the ball or crowned with his racket at the end of his follow-through. If he missed the ball with his racket, he would just as likely do a little dance and try and kick it up with his toe or heel. The only thing I didn't see him try was heading the ball. I found him a hard man to beat. <laughs> so there's, that's Johnny Johnson in 1944 after D-Day in France and that's Hugh Godfroy, um, our two adversaries on the squash court over there in the corner. How long was he here for, Johnny Johnson? That's Yes. It was about six months. They went down to Headcorn and Lashenden during that time. And before they went mobile, they kind of had a practice run. The squadrons went down to Lashenden and camped for the summer oh. in 1943 for, for about a month or so. But no aircraft here then? No, no, they were kind of still a Kenley squadron and all the you know, command structures went down with them. But it was all in preparation for going mobile and yeah. to give them the experience of packing up all their kit, moving out and living in, living under canvas. Creep on. Walk on. It was beautiful, 1932 officers' mess. Currently... Uh, in the process of being redeveloped. The plans look great, but as you can see, it has suffered 
several catastrophic fires and it is a grade two listed building so i'm a little bit sore about that i have to say can i make a point there yes of course with regard to officers mess yes um not all of the pilots were commissioned officers. No, Some were just were. sergeants. Yes, yes, they were. And agent, and the age of eighteen, and so on. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And they, and the thing is, not everybody was accommodated in there. There were billets in private houses that had been requisitioned and evacuated all around the neighbourhood. I've met so many people who, who own houses around here and they go, my house was used as billets by Canadian pilots during the war. And I'm sort of like, yeah, your house and everyone else's house, sweetheart. <laughs> I'm going to leave you in the hands of Art Sager, who was a Canadian pilot with 421 Squadron in 1943. He worked for a university. He was an actor. He was a journalist. He, what Art Sager didn't do don't bear thinking about anyway this is his arrival at Kenley and it's our officer's mess I thought I was in heaven when I woke up that first morning at Kenley opening my eyes I saw an angel leaning over me a beautiful angel with blue eyes she was saying sir sir your tea sir I reached up but she sprang away and I and flew out of the room it was a waff batswoman, a new one. This was her first day on duty. Unable to rouse me by knocking, she'd come right in with the morning tea. A delightful Kenley custom, but sadly the only time I was served it in bed. <laughs> there were other attractive features of Kenley. A Battle of Britain base in Surrey, 30 minutes by train from London. <laughs> the officers' mess had a double lounge, one with a piano and the other with a bar. A huge dining room, a theatre for briefings, movies and concerts, a billiard room, gymnasium and squash court. The bedrooms in the main building and annex were single occupancy. And in addition to bringing the tea in the morning, a batswoman or batman shined your shoes if they were left outside overnight. The meals were plentiful and tasty. Porridge, sausage, kippers, frequently eggs for breakfast and dinners of pre-war variety. Nothing but the best for our fighter pilots on frontline service. The only drawback, a minor one, was the distance from mess to dispersals, forcing everyone to acquire a bicycle or motorbike. So, obviously, he, he thought he was in the pink in there in 1943, and, and he probably was. However, it wasn't all beer and skittles for these guys. This is something that comes up in a lot of memoirs. They arrive here, they've been stationed up north, or they've been at an operational training unit, and they arrive here, and there's all these little hints that things aren't quite the same, and, and things are getting a bit more serious. And Art also writes... We were immediately reminded, however, that we were on more active operations when briefed by the wing intelligence officer on action to be taken if forced to bail out or crash land in enemy territory. We were photographed in civilian clothing for identity cards to be used if downed and evading capture and issued with escape kits containing silk map, phrase book in four languages and survival supplies. We were also given a P-38 revolver to protect ourselves in emergencies not described. So, yeah, things got a lot more serious once the guys were here. Can I ask yes. about the batswoman, the batman? Yes. Was that usual? Or was that... No. It wasn't. Bat, batswomen were, were a, I think, a bit of a peculiar Kenley, Kenley thing. Yeah. Um, but there were a lot of wafts working in the mess mm. all over the shop. And as I say, Flintfield House was the, the batman's quarters. I don't know where the batwomen were billeted. But, yes, it was a rather lovely 
replace the mess. Not anymore, but hopefully it will return to its former glory. Do any pictures yeah, yeah. exist of what it looked like? That, that's what it looked like only a few years ago, believe it or not. Is that this view from this side? No, 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 this from is from the other side. This from, if we're looking that way. I have another officer's mess story to tell you which involves another Canadian pilot and this one's quite dear to my heart because my day job is as a costumier and years ago I worked on a film called Mrs Henderson Presents which is about the windmill girls and this is uh, an account of a visit by the windmill girls to Kenley and it involves a guy called Thomas Carl Ibbotson who was one of our Canadian pilots, and it's written by Hugh Godfroy, our guy who was um, thrashing, or trying to thrash Johnny Johnson in the squash court. (laughs) So we're in 1943 still. About this time, it was announced that the Windmill Girls of London would put on a show for us at the Station Theatre. In spite of the bombing, the Windmill Theatre had continued to put on its variety show. The troupe had become a legend. The British laws of censorship allowed women to appear on stage nude as long as they didn't move. The windmill took full advantage of the privilege. Mindful of my experience at the Café de Paris, I chose a seat four or five rows back mid-stage. I was sitting beside Ibbotson. I hadn't gone to the show in London, being used to the crude striptease acts in Toronto. I had assumed that the windmill performance would be the same. To my great surprise, the show was faultless. The skits full of light-hearted humour, devoid of crude suggestion, and the women, magnificent. (laughs) Scattered throughout the performance were turns in which the curtains parted to reveal these gorgeous women, totally nude and motionless, posing like Greek statuary. On one of these occasions, a particularly beautiful blonde with a smooth, peachy complexion stood as the centrepiece. As the show progressed, Ibbotson, beside me, slid further and further down in his seat. All that was visible from the front were two beady little eyes, standing as though on stems. Ibbotson was pitifully shy. He would rather have faced a dozen Messerschmitts than be left alone with a good-looking girl. (laughs) The show got half a dozen curtain calls, plenty of whistles, but none of the lewd remarks that I'd heard from audiences in Toronto. The troupe was invited to the mess afterwards for drinks. The girl who'd been the centrepiece was just as beautiful at close quarters as she'd been on the stage. She wore a silk print blouse, a tailored skirt and high-heeled spectator pumps that complemented her gorgeous legs. Ibbotson thought he couldn't stand it. He said he was going upstairs for a cold shower. But his (laughs) self-appointed protector, Westhaver, refused to allow it and got him a double scotch to quiet his nerves. By the time the second drink was cursing through his veins, he was malleable and we marched him up to meet her. She caught on at once and, to the delight of the assembly, began to tease him. Given a chance to talk to these girls at close quarters, we quickly realised they were fine people. They were a dedicated group of professionals with social graces to equal their looks. Knowing the pilots, I couldn't help but worry that somebody would make a suggestive remark. Nobody did. They were all on their best behaviour. The troop left as a body, having earned the respect of everyone. Poor Ibbotson didn't have long to think about his blonde bombshell. A short time later, on a dark and rainy night, he died by the side of the road in the arms of his friend Westy. He had been crushed beneath his overturned jeep. This isn't quite true. Thomas Carl Ibbotson died after emergency surgery in 14 Canadian General Hospital near Redhill. He was stationed at Redhill at the time and he had a crash between Nutfield Ridge and the airfield. He took a corner too wide and an oncoming jeep ran into him. 
He was still alive. He died at 3am the following morning. And Westhaver couldn't have been by the side of the road with him because he'd already been killed in action himself. Mm. Ibbotson was, by all accounts, he wasn't a reckless guy. He was very sensible and definitely officer calibre. He'd already graduated as a pharmacist before he even joined the Royal Canadian Air Force. And I've been through his training records and all of them attest to what a sensible and decent bloke he was. This is Thomas Carl Ibbotson. That photograph was found in his brother's logbook. His brother was also a pilot, and that was found in his brother's logbook. Well, that was a very easy target for the bombers. Okay, I'm going to stop you all again. Kenley's original ops room was just in here. It was a single story sort of bungalow type building with an earth revetment around it I think people were always quite surprised about how vulnerable it was, I think everyone was expecting a subterranean bunker and there was just this little one story building there and we have got accounts of a visit by German dignitaries just before the outbreak of war and they showed them everything (laughs) but luckily they didn't show them where that flipping ops room was but to explain the whole business of the ops room I'm going to leave you in the hands of Joyce Millard who was an RDF WAF. We often talk about unsung heroes. I think those girls really were unsung heroes because I meet quite a lot of people who study these matters quite closely and they've never heard of them. Each station had three RDF little towers down towards the coast and around the coast that had equipment on which could triangulate by radio signals the position of a pilot in distress and they just used to sit there in these towers on farmland on their own listening for mayday calls and they saved so many lives and bless her Joyce who was one of Kenley's wafts wrote a book where she kind of traced through what had happened to all the pilots whose mayday calls she'd picked up when she was sitting in her tower But here she is. This is her description of the ops room at Kenley. Since the outbreak of war in 1939, the Air Force, in its wisdom, had been acquiring premises in and around Kenley and many RAF staff were being housed in requisitioned civilian billets scattered over a wide area, a precautionary measure against possible loss of life of skilled personnel from air raids when concentrated in one place. A shop in the main Caterham shopping area was already being used as a mock operation room for training ops staff and this became temporary accommodation for Kenley Sector Ops Room while the more permanent premises of the Grange at Old Coulston were being suitably converted. It was from the temporary Caterham shop premises that RAF operations were controlled during the crucial months of August and September 1940 at the height of the Battle of Britain. Air Chief Marshal Dowding, Lord Beaverbrook and Winston Churchill were among those who visited at various times to observe firsthand the progress of the battle. Passers-by doing their shopping would have been very surprised had they known what was going on behind closed doors in Godston Road. (laughs) So on the 18th of August raid, the ops room wasn't hit, but all the communications to it were knocked out except one phone line, and they realised that they really had to do something about it, and the situation couldn't continue, so they moved over to the temporary one that they'd set up in the butcher shop in Godston Road, which was right over the GPO main telephone cable, so it was easy for them to use that. And then by December 1940, it was at the Grange in Coolsdon. 
There's a plaque up on the wall. There's a plaque on the wall at the Butcher shop in shop. Godston Road, yes. Yep. So Joyce says, some WAFs were being posted to direction finding stations right away, but I was rather pleased to be staying and working at the Grange to learn a bit more about the ops room procedure. I reported for duty the next morning at 7.30 hours and became part of B crew. The ops room complex was spread over an area around Old Coulsdon. The nearby golf clubhouse had been commandeered and that was our mess where we ate and where dances were held. There was a naffy within the golf course grounds and our billets were requisitioned private houses in an unmade up road alongside and overlooking the golf course. The orderly room was in Coulsdon Court Road and the whole establishment was known as Sea Camp. Things were looking up, I thought, as I got settled in. This was a vast improvement over life in huts on main camp and I could foresee many advantages. A lot more freedom for a start and not an admin queen bee in sight. As we were working shifts, including night duty, it was impractical to enforce any sort of curfew on us, all spread out in different houses, and there would be less disturbance for sleep after night duty than in a camp hut. We might even be able to have a lay-in on our day off, a perk not allowed in a hut where all the beds had to be made up and biscuits and bedding stacked for daily inspection. So her social life goes through the roof here. She remembers Canadian Army dances at Lingfield with transport provided there and back, the cider mill... And my verdict on the fairly potent brew they sold was pretty hot stuff. They were not supposed to sell to the Canadians, my diary informs me. And the Britannia Club in Croydon in 1943, I had a meal of pork sausages, new potatoes, fresh garden peas, followed by strawberries and cream, all for a bob. Cracky, that's amazing. The aptly named Kit Bag was another haunt. Dances were often held at the golf club for Kenleyites, and after one of these do's, I was escorted home on a warm, moonlit summer night by a Canadian called Bernard, who wanted to show me the 19th hole on the golf course. <laughs> Being unfamiliar with that sport, I didn't find out until much later that there were only 18. Maybe that's why it took us until 3am to reach the door of my billet. Oh, dear, bless her, Joyce. When did she? have that meal because what, that what was date doing, was that that would be 1943 or thereabouts so what about rationing I mean that, what she's described a, there yes, sounds like a pretty reasonable meal to me you know what things you were buying in cafes and what have you I think there's a funny thing with rationing because if you had the money you could you could You'd live uh, quite well yes and there were things that weren't on ration and were on ration and blah blah it's all very complicated well, though. Used to eat out in the west end and said yes. that restaurants weren't subject to rationing uh, no and you, and you could eat quite yes. well yes she well, used to go to a curry know. house called Viraswamis that's still there yes. Yes. um and off there, regent there was, street there things like seafood and stuff there was very seafood that wasn't rationed or wasn't subject to any restriction yeah yeah Mm. so yeah let's move on let's move on quickly before we end up walking around this is a very very unusual survivor here this blast pen has its original central spine wall and it's the only one on the airfield that where that central spine wall is original. The one at the Tribute was reconstructed a couple of years ago. There's been restoration work done on the brickwork on this one and it hasn't been entirely successful, but we are working on it. After extensive tests of mortar and brickwork that I won't bore you with, it's all going to be redone next summer. So we're hopeful that we'll have a better result second time around than we have the first time around. I'm going back to Art Sago again with this business of waiting for scrambles and sitting at dispersals and, and all of this stuff. 
Art Sager said the waiting between briefing and takeoff was the most edgy time, at least for the first shows, and to keep calm you fussed over your kite with the fitter and rigger. Once you were in the air you were too busy to be nervous. Ian Gleed, another famous ace of the Battle of Britain period. This isn't written about his time at Kenley. He was actually stationed at Kenley before the war. It was his first squadron, 46 squadron here at Kenley, flying biplanes, bless him. And he wrote a book in, I think it was 1942, called A Rise to Conquer, which details his experiences during the Battle of Britain. And this is what he writes about that horrible, tense moment. He says, hello, ops. Yes. How many? Phew. Hells, bells. Okay. Super readiness, boys. There are 120 plus. Jesus Christ. Let's go. The boys run to their planes and clamber into the cockpits. Flight, tell my crew to be ready to start up and see that everything is set for a damn quick takeoff. I'll stay by the phone. I lift the receiver. Hello, ops. A flight. Now it's super readiness. Super readiness, by the way, is when they're actually sitting in the aircraft waiting for the phone call. They're not sort of like lounging around. They're, they're actually sitting with the engines running. Hello, ops. A flight. Now it's super readiness. How are the plots? They're coming now. I expect you'll be off shortly. I replace the receiver with mixed feelings. The sun seems very warm. I look out of the window. My plane is only about 50 yards away. The grass looks very green now. Oh, God, let us be lucky. I sit on the bed. The hut is empty. All the men are out by the planes. The black telephone looks like some evil genius. Why doesn't it ring? Please, God, don't let me get wounded. Hell, let's have some music. I give the gramophone a few cranks and pick up the first record on the pile. Little Sir Echo. The noise rather startles me. The tune conjures up a tea dance in Margate on my last leave. It's a damn good ballroom there and damn good cream cakes. Bring! Hello! Start up! Start up, I scream! Over the wire comes Patrol Portland. You're to fix the escort fighters. I slam the receiver down and run like hell. Ian Gleed was uh, shot down and killed over Tunisia in April 1943. This is a picket Hamilton fort folks, part of the airfield's defences and would have only been used if the airfield was under direct attack from troop transports or parachutists landing on the airfield. This little thing has a kind of hydraulic jack that raises it up and it has a, a slit that a weapon can be fired through. Obviously you pretty much wouldn't want to be no. down there. Um, I'm going to go back to Hammond Innes. And obviously this isn't a picket Hamilton fort he was firing from. It was probably a three-inch gun. But he says, low to the south, another raid coming in, low to the south. This is back to the hardest day again. Very low, another raid coming. The voice from gun ops sounded frightened and jerky. How near, I cut in. Very near, came the answer. I caught Langdon's arm and yelled the message into his ear. Stop, he shouted. Lay just over the hangar. Shrapnel, fuse two, load. The gun swung round, and then we heard the ominous sound, the whine of fast-flying aircraft low to the south. It grew in an instant to a roar that drowned the sounds above us, and then there they were, like magic, over the hangars. Strung out in a single line, they came fast and low, so low that I saw one of them lift his port wing to overtop the wireless mast by the main gates. 
They were not more than 30 feet above the barrack blocks as they laid their eggs. Wingtip to wingtip they seemed to be. I saw the bombs cascade from beneath their fuselages. Sharply came Langdon's order, fire! And they would have come up from that way, obviously, with the hangers. Everybody had a good look? They weren't particularly successful because they always flooded. And I think in 1942 or so, Bomber Command just said, please don't give us any more of these flipping things. And they sort of went out of use. The fighter airfields usually had three. We know of two. So we've got one AWOL at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but it's very rare to find one still in its original position. So here, we all, we're all here right now, aren't we? So, Marvellous. Yeah. This here behind the fencing, if you want to come and have a quick look at it, it's a pair of upturned sewer pipes that caused a lot of consternation when they were first revealed. People thought they were part of a latrine system or something. Obviously, once they'd been emptied, it became obvious that it was a gun position that had, you know, use what you've got. They had sewer pipes, they let them into the ground, put a gun mount in the bottom, one side for your observer and your ammunition, the other side for your gunner. So it probably would have had a Lewis gun mounted there. There are several of them around the airfield. There's this one up here, there's another two pairs of them over the other side of the airfield on Whiteleaf Bank as well. This is the first place we did archaeology a few years ago and there's a triangular picket point there that was revealed and a dispersal hut here or that we think it was probably an armoury or something. It has a concrete base here. There would have been a firing range over here. It was all very close to that house in fact. But they've always called this hut the Canadian hut and it always you know I always think well why the whole station was Canadian from 1942 to when things shut down in 1944 so it was all Canadian so I don't know why that one is particularly the Canadian hut but anyway I'm going to read you a bit from Flying Officer George Aitken's recollections he was stationed here and flew with the Kenley Wing in 1943 Usually the routine was to prepare oneself, shaving, washing, getting dressed and then heading for the mess to partake of what breakfast had been made ready for us. Following breakfast, most of us might check to see if we had any mail and then find those trusty bicycles each of us had. I would imagine the NCO pilots would have had a like routine as we might all meet up along the perimeter track and head for our dispersal area together. The maintenance personnel always seemed to beat us and some Spitfires had already been serviced. Of course, they were sleeping over here. Our intelligence officer, doctor and adjutant, and on some occasions our padre would be with us at dispersal. Our May Wests, parachutes, etc. were all kept at the dispersal hut along with our flying helmet and face mask. We would tie on our May West, fitting it to an oxygen container that was fitted for just such a test. Some of us might also check the parachutes, making sure that the release pin in particular was not bent in any way that might cause a failure should one have to use it. When I was at Kenley, 403 carried out a number of different operational functions. Patrols, scrambles, patrols, flight scrambles, escorts, rodeo sweeps, ramrods, high cover sorties and circuses. On any operation that might take the squadron over the channel, we would be briefed by the squadron leader in our dispersal and it was then that we might find out who would be on what type of action and in what position we would fly in the flights. On patrols, we would know before takeoff where we were to patrol, such as Beachy Head, etc. On all scramble activities upon <coughs> getting airborne, the controller would advise you where, when, and what duty he wished the leader to proceed with. 
How were pilots assigned the various functions? A good question, and I think it was the squadron leader who chose who was to be in his section, and each of the flight commanders chose who would be in theirs and what position they would fill. Number two, number three, number four. Since we usually had a full complement of pilots, it appeared to me that they did try and share the various functions fairly. Whilst I was keen to keep the same letter and serial number of the Spitfires I flew, I didn't always keep the position I flew in the flight. Also behind the dispersal hut was a place to take a nervous pee. <laughs> a dispersal before takeoff or if left behind, i.e. not flying on the sortie, we might play cards or chess, write letters or catch up on sleep, or if the weather was good, take in the sunshine. It might also be a time for some of us to get to know our ground crew, who were just as keen as us to see the Spitfires return. On one occasion I'd been left behind and I watched a perfect landing of an unmarked Spitfire. It didn't head for dispersal, but further along the perimeter track, a staff car seemed to be waiting for the pilot to shut down his engine. Before getting into the car, the pilot took off the helmet to reveal locks of blonde hair. She had flown in one of our replacement Spitfires, a lady member of the Air Transport Auxiliary. So that's George Aitken. He was from Alberta. He tried to get a job in a bank after graduating from school and was told he'd be wanted in the forces, so he applied to be a pilot instead of working in a bank. As for our female members of the Air Transport Auxiliary, one famous Kenley pilot who flew with the Air Transport Auxiliary was Anne Welsh. She became very, very famous for breaking the distance gliding record for ladies in 1961. And she is the lady who is very much responsible for setting up gliding at Lasham. I don't know anybody who does a lot of gliding is very familiar with Lasham. She describes her first flight in a Spitfire. The Spitfire's delight in flying gave me sheer pleasure. Some aeroplanes are harsh or reluctant, others without character, but the Spitfire was perfect, and when I came into the circuit at my destination, she floated back onto the ground like a feather. As I taxied in, two flights of Spitfires roared into the air to turn south in close formation for a low-level sweep over France. Maybe tomorrow mine would be with them. And then a tall Dutch pilot gave me a lift to the watch office on his motorbike. Life was completely wonderful. famous photos of the raid on the 18th of August 1940. So, you're standing about there. Yes. Um, uh, this Probably is one was. of um, Rolf von Pebble's photos yeah. taken from the Dornier 17. Okay. You can see the wing there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that is about where you are standing now, where that Spitfire is. Along this side of the airfield, we had a parachute and cable system, which was another one of these sort of like improvised weapons adapted from a naval system that fired a steel cable into the air with a little parachute at the top. If it caught anything, another parachute would be deployed at the bottom and you hoped that the steel cable being wrapped around the wing, the propeller or anything that it clung onto would be enough to bring down your aircraft. Obviously, this is quite a botched-together system, and the Navy didn't like it because out at sea it blew back onto the ships and was a complete disaster. Mm -hmm. So they brought it in for airfield use instead. And um, obviously, you're not going to catch anything high in that. It's going to be for low-level flying only. And the, the Dorniers that came over here, they had a new 
bomb, the fuse on the bombs that they were carrying was set to detonate at 50 feet. Okay, 50 feet. They came in so low that a lot of their bombs didn't detonate because mm. they were too low and they just skittered about on the airfield. Stan Ford, who I don't know whether some of you got a chance to chat to him on the 18th of August for the fly past he visited. He's 100 this year. He was here for I the hardest day. Yeah. Yes, exactly. He remembered seeing the Dorneas coming over and seeing all these bombs skittering around on the airfield and he just thought to himself well if one comes towards me I'll jump over it <laughs> and, he th and he looks back on it and says oh we must have been completely nuts but that was his only thing he just thought oh, oh if it comes my way I'm, I'm just going to jump over it and that's that so it's an absolutely extraordinary raid I'm going to read you a little bit more from Hammond Innes which again has got another weird little parallel between the 18th of August raid and then the first plane was upon us at point-blank range Langdon gave the order to fire in the desperate hope that we should score a direct hit I suppose we missed at any rate it swept unfalteringly over us its great wingspan casting a shadow over the pit that seemed to me like the shadow of death I could see the pilot sitting woodenly in his cockpit I saw his teeth bared and thought it must take nerve to do what he was doing as it swept past, a little line of jumping sand ran across the top of the parapet. The rear gunner was firing at us. I ducked. But just before I ducked, I saw the Bofus on our side of the drone open up and fire on the plane. Its little flaming oranges streamed towards it, and then one hit and another bursting along the fuselage. The great plane staggered and then crumpled up and plunged towards the earth. I didn't see it crash. By this time, the next plane was over us and the rear gunner was pumping a stream of bullets into the pit. One of the nine Dorniers was hit by a Bofus shell and it was the first one across the airfield. So I'm wondering whether this is the Dornier that he's describing. It was the one piloted by Lamberty and Hauptmann Joaquin Roth was on board. He was actually the navigator and the leader of the whole sortie. So that is the one. It got hit through the wing by a Bofus shell and uh, it went through the fuel tank and started a fire and they were in dire straits. They managed to get as far as Leaves Green, very crippled, where the Home Guard took credit for bringing them down. With, uh, they, were, they were doing rifle practice. They had newly issued rifles and they all opened rapid fire on this flipping Dornier and took credit. For, for bringing it down, although we have testimony from the people on board the aircraft at the time who were taken prisoner of war afterwards that they didn't even notice by that point. They were all desperately trying to bail out. Two of them bailed out and got very, very badly injured because they were so low. The third guy saw what had happened and pulled the ripcord literally as he was more or less standing in the doorway of the, of the escape hatch of the Dornier and he only sustained minor injuries to his hand. Lamberty and Roth stayed with the aircraft, crash-landed at Leaves Green, were very badly burnt and taken prisoner of war. As for our parachute and cable system, that brought down another Dornier which crashed into a cottage at the back there called Sunnycroft. I don't know is some of the you one may in know. Yeah. No, it's in Golf Road. It's just here at the end of Golf Road. Oh, okay. And all five members of that crew were killed.
And of course later on we had the balloon holding the cables up. Yes, mm. yes, yes. And Johnny Kent, who we spoke about earlier, the guy who was saying he wondered what would have happened if our pilots had been trained properly in air gunnery, mm. he, before the war, he was the guy that did all the test flights on hitting balloon cables and what could be done to the aircraft to counteract hitting a balloon cable. How he survived that, mm. I shall never know. But I think, did he get the Air Force Cross for that? I'm not sure. He did get honoured yeah. for that work in itself. And I mean, oh. the courage of the man to just go, like, yeah. fly into mm. balloon cables repeatedly just doesn't bear thinking yeah. about. No. And they did develop a little thing where the, a little shot fired. If the, it would, if the cable went into a, a, a divot in the front of the wing, it would kind of fire a bolt that would cut the cable. Uh -huh. And um, it did work. Mm. Uh, but that was all, all tested by Johnny Kent. Mm. Anyway, we shall move on. Are we all here? Obviously, here we are. We're back at the tribute. This is our tribute to the servicemen and women who served at Kenley. It's not a memorial as such. It doesn't list any names. It lists the squadron numbers and where they came from, and it commemorates everybody that served here. And I suppose, as we're sort of just doing World War II today, I'm going to finish with what was going on here on D-Day. By the 6th of June 1944, Kenley was really a backwater. Our last fighter squadrons had left sort of between the 18th and the 20th of April 1944 they'd flown out and they were all down at Tangmere awaiting the call that D-Day was going to happen. So I'm going to read a few little bits from 403 Squadron's diary, their operations record book. RAF operations record books can be quite dry affairs but the Canadian ones are quite personal. Sunday 4th of June 1944. The big day must really be at hand because we woke up this morning to find that all of our kites had been painted with black and white stripes. No flying at all today, but we did have a gen talk by the intelligence officer pertaining to D-Day. Monday 5th June 1944. We certainly feel that great happenings are in the offing as tonight we are all confined to camp and sure enough we all attended a gen session with all the pilots of 126 or 127 airfields at the mess at 126. The long-awaited big day is here at last. And then Tuesday, 6th of June, 1944, D-Day. At about 6.30 hours this morning, the wing, including our squadron, was on its way. And what a show. It was almost beyond description. Boats of all shapes and sizes, destroyers standing off from the shore and pounding away at Hun positions and giving covering fire for the landings. <coughs> our second show, at 12 o'clock, was quite uneventful. No Huns were seen, and our landing forces seemed to have made very definite progress. Those guys had been stationed here for more or less the whole of 1943, and there they were, they were at Tangmere. They obviously went to the advanced landing grounds in France after that and continued the chase through Europe. This is the last set of stuff that I'm going to read you, and I don't know who wrote it. It was Kenley's station commander during June 1944, I don't know what his name is. I've got his signature on the flipping document and I can't read it and it's so frustrating. I'm just going to read it because it, is, it cracks me up every time I read it. But it, And it's, it's very funny. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, I'll let you make your own mind up. 6th of June, 1944. Known officially as D-Day, 
On this Tuesday was launched the invasion of Europe from the West. Evidence of abnormal activity was provided by the almost ceaseless passage of large numbers of aircraft over the aerodrome throughout the day. So we've got this... He's completely detached from the action now. They're just sitting here cleaning up the airfield after all the action that's happened in the previous years, and they're watching it all go by. However, they've got a new menace to deal with. 15th of the 6th, 44... At about 23.58 hours, the first flying bomb was introduced into this neighbourhood. 16th of the 6.44. Flying bombs, or Bugs Doodle, continued to pass over or prang into the surrounding districts. By the end of the day, the bits and pieces being brought into the station gave rise to hopes by the salvage section that all previous records for scrap metal might be exceeded. (laughs) 22nd of the 6.44. 500 personnel of 5351 Airfield Construction Wing arrived for the purpose of installing balloon sites, followed by personnel of the RAF Construction Company, Royal Corps of Signals. 23rd of the 644. (coughs) Station Flight Biggin Hill arrived on attachment on account of encroachment of balloon barrage on that station. It may not be out of place to record here that the news that our famous and much-advertised neighbour had been afflicted with a new type of pest known as the balloonatic and that it had fallen from its pinnacle to the low level of a balloon centre was received on this station with ill-concealed (laughs) humour. This humour was boogemistic and snarkish in the manner of its disappearance for on... 24th of the 6th, 44, a laconic signal announcing the limits of the balloon barrage was received from higher authority on this unit. An equally laconic plotting of the coordinates on the map by the CO served to quicken considerably our interest when it became horribly clear that we also were to be engulfed by the surging tide of jelly bags. (laughs) At about 18.45 on this fatal Saturday, the first of an incredible number of these monstrosities ascended lousily into the sky in a position uncomfortably near the officers' mess. And by the end of Sunday, the 25th, 6.44, the ambient air was bespattered with a bevy of bloated bladders which floated with bovine content and cat-like detachment in the heavens. As a result of this bladder disease, station flight Biggin Hill moved to Red Hill and 1004 SWHQ to Gatwick. At approximately 9.10 hours, a flying bomb pranged among requisitioned properties just south of the camp, doing considerable damage to houses and rendering the camp cinema unserviceable. The history of this unit for the remainder of the month consists of bladders, bladders and still more bladders. Surely never since that long-forgotten dawn which revealed for the first time the existence of the North and South Downs can so evil a blight have settled over the southeast counties. <laughs> and that is the last wartime entry in Kenley's station diary. Thank you for listening to the Wings Museum podcast. For more information or to get in touch, visit www.wingsmuseum.co.uk.